first of all, Kevin Sullivan, I want you to know that I am alive and I am well. I am not in an Egyptian tomb in Cairo. I am not dwelling with the headhunters on the Amazon River. I am not in the jungles of Borneo and Sumatra with the prehistoric pygmies. Nor am I with the holy men in Calcutta and Tibet. Just as Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, went into the deserts of Judea to fast for 40 days and 40 nights to gain strength to fight the devil, I, being a mere mortal, have also gone into the desert, shackled to this river bottom, to cleanse my soul and spirit and gain the power that I will need to defeat you and Abuddha Deen, to rid myself of every evil thing that you represent, all the filth, the dirt, the slime, the mire, and the disgusting, putrid, sick, inhumane acts that make you what you are, Kevin Sullivan. In the moment that I know that I have been released from the powers of darkness and all the evil spirits have left me, I will break these chains that bind me, tear loose these bonds that hold me. I will rise up from this river-bottom grave and be free, free at last. And I will march, crawl, swim if I have to, until I find you. And I will find you no matter how long it takes, for there's no place that you can hide. There's nowhere for you to run. Nothing and no one can save you now. I am coming back. Welcome, everybody, to episode 294 of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. Barry, this week's episode, uh, as you could probably uh, probably tell from the uh, opening uh, montage that we had Lou do for us, a tribute to the life of superstar Billy Graham, who at the time of this recording we lost just last night. Uh, and I, you know, I mentioned uh, in a later segment, Barry, that here we had just talked about this segment a week or two before, uh, and now we lose the superstar. So on this show, we will be talking about the life of superstar Billy Graham. Uh, we will be, uh, as our match of the week, we'll be going to Philadelphia, PA, Barry Rose's favorite city currently, to September 16th, 1978, a Sicilian stretcher match. Barry Rose, first of all, welcome. Our first ever Sicilian stretcher match, Barry. I'm going to celebrate this too, Jeff. In doing a Sicilian stretcher match, I'm going to get some Sicilian food for dinner. This is the, a most unique match, and I'm really glad that you chose it. Obviously, sad with the passing of superstar Billy Graham, but I don't think I'd ever seen this match before, so I'm really glad that you did go ahead and choose it for us. Every once in a while, I, uh, I do well, something yeah. good. Besides that, uh, on this episode, we're going to do a little Florida Man or Not segment, and also we are offering up the top action films of all time. Spoiler alert, Barry Rose's favorite movie is on the list. He's very happy about that. But it's not number one. I think everyone listening will find their uh, choice as number one action film of all time to be a very interesting one. So what do you say, Barry? We talk a little superstar Billy Graham. So, you know, Barry, I'm not sure if it was last week or the week before, uh, I made reference to the promo 
uh, that superstar Billy Graham had done where he was tied to the riverbed and uh, was talking uh, with certain religious overtones. And here last night at the time we're recording this, we uh, we all received the news and it was announced on AEW that uh, we had lost truly. And I think this term sometimes gets thrown around a little too loosely, a giant in the wrestling industry with the death of superstar Billy Graham. And Barry, this was something I think everyone sort of knew was coming. Uh, we had heard reports that he was in extremely poor health. Uh, I think his wife was posting pictures of, of Billy in the hospital in a somewhat dire straits. But still, when we got the news that we had lost, uh, the superstar, it was, it was a tough, uh, tough get, uh, that we had to receive that news, Barry. Yeah. And, you know, as you said, look, this, this was not a secret. This is, you know, secret. This was something that was expected. And, you know, if you go back the last decade, maybe even longer, the amount of health issues that superstar Billy Graham had had, I think making it as long as he made it, he was almost 80 years, he would have been 80 years old in just a couple of months, I think. It's pretty incredible because he really did undergo uh, a massive amount of health issues. And, you know, watching AEW last night, and I believe it was during the Jungle Boy Roosh match where they, they announced it. And I think it was Excalibur that brought it up. And, uh, he had, you could hear there were tears in his voice. And you said something to me off air that, you know, Tony Shibani had brought up the fact that he had worked with him in Crockett when he was doing, I think he was back to the psychedelic gimmick at that point. You know, it's a loss, Jeff. And it's a loss because it's so much of the guys that we grew up watching. Are, have you, have left us, you know, or in the process of leaving us or in just, you know, in a lot of days, I, I, I was having this conversation with somebody over the last couple of days. I, I, I think you're probably similar, Jeff, and I don't think we don't always think of ourselves at our, at our legal age. You know, it, it's a, a lot of times in my head and certainly some of my actions, I'm still 15 years old. I'm still a young guy. I don't know if I don't know if I'm even there. I still might be 13, you know, so like 13, right? I've discovered my penis, you know, I'm a, <laughs> exactly. however old that is, you know, where you go, holy shit, look at that. Uh, <laughs> that's where we're at these days, but you know, so many of our heroes and so many of the people that we watched and you know, and I'll always try to put this into perspective for people when we were kids and we would go to the matches, it, it you know, sitting up front was great. You know, but it didn't matter where you sat, right? Like that was the key. You were there. Like these days it would matter if we went to a show or we want to be as close as we can. But I was just so happy to be in a building back in those days. And I looked at every wrestler and it, it didn't matter if it was Dusty Rhodes or Superstar Graham in the main event or it was, you know, a, a guy just jerking the curtain, a guy who spends his life. Every one of these guys were stars to me. And I looked up and it was just, you know, it, the impact that all those guys had. And again, it didn't matter if it was Don Serrano in the ring or whoever it was. They were all legitimate superstars to me. So it, there are so few of these people left. And I was reading an article yesterday and they were I forget who the article was by. It, it was uh, wrestling related. And they were talking about that, you know, superstar Graham was on life support, et cetera. And it made mention that I believe that Abe Jacobs is the oldest living professional wrestler right now. And I don't think Abe is in good shape. Is he, I, now, is he older than uh, Cowboy Bob Ellis? 
And that's that's yeah, that's a good one because if I'm correct, he is just under a hundred, Bob Ellis. The only thing I, I want to say, like ninety eight. The only thing I would say with Cowboy Bob Ellis is. I don't know if there's any verification if he is either alive or dead. I know that a lot of people believe he's alive. I can tell you, and I guess we're going a little off course as we normally do. Bob Ellis was a guy that was involved in professional wrestling for decades, and he retired at some point, I'm going to guess in the 1980s, early 80s, and his passion, I guess, had always been to raise horses, and he was a horse rancher, I guess is the word, and there was some sort of doping scandal, and he was involved right in the middle of it, and he basically went off the radar at that point. I have been, on a personal level, I was trying to find him, and I couldn't find him at all. Robert Ellis, not an easy person to locate in this country, but there are, I'm glad you bring up a guy like Bob Ellis, because guys like Ellis and Abe Jacobs are guys that really go back to the 40s or the 50s, and that were around, and every day as we get older, you know, it's you look at Mongo McMichael and we talked about him recently and, you know, Mongo was a staple of WCW in its last couple of years there, right? His last three or four years. And you look at the serious health issues that he's got now and just the horrible shape. And, you know, you go back to guys that we grew up watching. And I was thinking about this great angle that I remember seeing on CWF in early 1977. And it was, uh, Billy Graham and Ox Baker attacking the assassin Jody Hamilton and breaking his nose on television and turning the assassin face. And, you know, then it dawns on me that all three of these guys are gone. And as I look at, you know, for me, CWF is in my heart, which is not a shock. And I look at the CWF roster and it's it's massively depleted, you know, and they're doing a Legends luncheon. I believe it's uh it's this upcoming Friday, and they're honoring Eddie Graham, and I think they're honoring the Bushwhackers, and obviously Luke is still with us, Butch is not. So it is really tough, Jeff. It's one of the things of getting old, and it really goes back to, to what we were talking about right at the beginning is that in our head, we're not old guys. We're, you know, we're the, we're the same guys, and yet all of our heroes and all these people we loved watching are just disappearing around us, Jeff. Well, you know, I don't think that it can be understated what a huge deal Billy Graham was. He was a, a man for his time. His time was the 70s uh, in a lot of ways. I, I'm not disparaging what he did in the 80s, but he was really a man about the 70s. And to think now that that's uh, we're, we're talking 40, you know, almost 43, 44 years ago is when his time began to uh, slowly kind of drift away from him. And yes, he was active in the eighties, but I mean the Billy Graham that was all over those magazines. This was a guy you think about the after magazines as they were called. Okay. The guy that probably, if you were talking about who made the cover of the most after magazines, okay. You'd think about guys like uh, Bruno uh, and Dusty Rhodes, Mill Mascaris, because apparently Bill after thought he was incredible. Just the image of, uh, Mascaris and all his different outfits was such a, a color photo opportunity. But then the other guy had to be Billy Graham. Billy Graham was all over the after magazines everywhere he went. And the very first after magazine that I remember seeing Billy Graham on was one where, uh, he's we- uh, wearing sort of the be- uh, beaded vest. And it was when he was still out in LA. And the caption was, it was a great caption, whoever came up with it. 
this Billy Graham preaches violence, uh, you know, playing off the, uh, the, the preacher Billy Graham's name. Uh, and it, it was a, it was a great looking photo because he was doing the arm shot and he kind of had that, you know, he was wearing like colored sort of like, uh, round John Lennon, uh, esque glasses and he kind of looked like a, a hippie, but that's, that's what sold back then. And then, you know, from, from LA working up into San Francisco. And then he went out to, uh, to work. I, I know, I, and I know he had started up in Calgary, but I'm talking about like during the seventies mainly. Uh, he has spent a couple of years, I think up in the AWA. Uh, he spent, of course, time in Florida, did his run up in New York. And man, he was all over the magazines then. And it, it's just amazing because, you know, our match of the week that we're going to talk about is a match between, uh, Bob Backlund and superstar Billy Graham. From, uh, September 16th, 1978 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. And what's interesting is I think there are certain parallels that you could draw in both men's careers because you think about it, you know, Backlund was a guy that he had this window of time where he was just absolutely white hot. And then when he sort of fell out of favor or stopped being cool, however you want to describe it, I mean, the fall was precipitous. I mean, he just like all of a sudden he was just the antithesis of what you wanted in your promotion, because all of a sudden you had Hulk Hogan come along and Hulk Hogan was like at the time was sort of the cool baby face. And you had Dusty with his, you know, his promos and his rap and Bob Backlund was just gone. And so here you had these two guys that were really made for their time, which was the 70s. And uh in this match, we're going to talk about it in a second. But was a, was a really good example of why these guys were so popular in the time. And superstar Billy Graham begot guys like Hulk Hogan, like Jesse Ventura and guys that did that whole, uh, you know, Dusty Rhodes, uh, let's Jesse face Ventura. it. I mean, no, no, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Jesse, Jesse went on Twitter last night and said yeah. there would be no Jesse Ventura if it hadn't been for superstar Billy Graham. Yeah. And those guys in turn, uh, you know, uh, led into guys, Scott Steiner hugely influential on Scott Steiner and what Scott Steiner's look became uh, when he became the the big dad, uh, big bad voodoo daddy or whatever he called himself. He was stealing Billy Graham's look from the seventies, you know? And so you, you look at guys that are, you know, the well muscled guys that kind of can do a good promo and stuff like that. There's a lot of Billy Graham to all those guys. And was Billy Graham ever a great quote unquote wrestler? No. Was Billy Graham a great worker? Absolutely, because a good wrestler, a good uh, performer, quote unquote, could get a really good match out of Billy Graham. And, you know, uh, Billy Graham was one of the really, I believe, first cool villains, uh, a guy that people wanted to cheer for, uh, uh, a guy that, you know, uh, teenage fans or, or young men, because they heard his promos. Uh, you know, they started liking him. And, you know, there's always been that argument, you know, well, what if Vince Sr. had turned Billy Graham? And you really have to wonder whether or not Billy Graham, if he had been turned, say, in the, around this time period, late 78, would he have become Hulk Hogan before Hulk Hogan? What say you, Barry? Absolutely. He would have been Billy Graham if he had stayed. And I think his health issues, right, were already creeping up. And I think it was uh, a combination of uh narcotics i know that you know self-admittedly i'm not breaking kayfabe this was in the book but he became a uh a pretty 
pretty much addicted to drugs. It uh, helped change his physique, he, uh, skin cancer. And then there was a lot of things that were vague, like, you know, like you couldn't get certain information and what was coming out. Gorilla Monsoon, do you remember that whole scandal? Oh, yeah. Gorilla Monsoon. Monsoon. Uh, the great Gorilla Monsoon uh, <laughs> used to have a column in a Philadelphia newspaper in, I guess, the 70s into the 80s. And he published one report that superstar Billy Graham was dead because that was the rumor that he had died. And apparently when Gorilla found out that he was alive, he never did any sort of retraction. He just left it out there. So, uh, And I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. That, that's something that to me. Uh, you know, I've heard people say that Gorilla Monsoon was a great guy and that he, uh, was a guy that was, you know, he was behind the scenes, did a lot of work and stuff like that. But that's something I've kind of always, I think, held against him, you know, like what kind of fucking asshole are you that you can't sit there and say, uh, you know, I'd heard a rumor. I, I made a mistake. I was wrong. And we're all glad to hear that, uh, you know, the, that Billy Graham is still with us. And, you know, we hope he'll be back in the WWF at some point, like something, you know, you can just put something out like that. But the fact that he deliberately refused to retract his statement, like, I'm sorry, that makes you kind of a fucking asshole. You know? <laughs> it does. I mean, let's and, be honest. You know, yeah. And yeah, love the guy or hate him, but let's be honest, right, Jeff? He was great with Jesse Ventura, and he was great with Bobby Heenan. And, yeah, I get all that. It was great shtick and stuff like that. But I'm sorry, you're still kind of a douchebag if you are, you know, if you can't admit that. And That's anyway, I, I interrupt. No, but it's true. But it's, you know, look, it's there are certain things uh, that, you know, people, you know, it's like it, Billy Graham had a, a checkered past. Right. And I, this is certainly not the forum as we remember. But there were people today that were like, so we're just supposed to brush a lot of this underneath the rug. And look, you're right about Gorilla. You published that somebody died. And look, if Billy was fragile mentally, and I believe if you look at some of the events that took place, I think he was <laughs> mentally in a really bad he, spot. He makes, he makes Ric Flair look strong-willed in a lot of places. There, there you go. There <laughs> you go. I, I think Billy and, uh, you know, again, I, I think a lot of it goes back to, uh, it's really bizarre to losing or having the WWWF title taken away from him and was given to Bob Backlund, obviously. And Billy never really achieved those heights again. And, and it's a shame because, you know, even if he didn't stay in the Federation in New York, in my opinion, he probably could have gone anywhere. I, I think I read today, Billy as a worker too was, you know, and as Jeff has said, he was not a great professional wrestler at all, but he made five trips to Japan and he didn't make five trips to Japan because he was having classics in the ring. His style is about the complete opposite uh, of what takes place in Japan. But that's the kind of attraction that this guy was. And I, I feel that he could have gone anywhere. He was in Florida and Billy came to Florida in 19. I guess it was either late 78 or early 79 came in as a heel was here for about two weeks and turned babyface and teamed with dusty for about two weeks and then was gone and no explanation just here one day gone the next. I have no idea what happened, but it was a real shame because he was, he was the number two babyface right behind dusty just like that. 
Like you, there was no t- meaning if if it happened here, he could have gone to Texas, and I think he did go to Texas at some point. But he could have gone anywhere in the country, and he could have been a main event wrestler, if not a heel, a baby face. The age old question too, and I, I saw a lot of this today as people are putting their memories of Billy Graham out there about, you know, Vince Sr. fucked up. It's my favorite. Vince Sr. fucked up and should have made Billy a babyface world champion instead of Backlund. And I, there's, there's, there's Backlund hate that's out there. That's fine. But at the time it, it definitely made sense. And I believe there was a handshake. There was a deal in place between Backlund and, and Vince Sr. And I guess he wasn't going to break that deal. And I respect that. The mistake, and again, we're, we're saying this in hindsight, you know, now it's 40 years later or whatever it's been, 45 years later. We're saying in hindsight, Billy Graham would have been an amazing baby face. And if I was running a business, certainly I've got the mindset I have now. And Billy lost the title. Even if I wasn't going to have him go after Backlund, I would have made him a baby face because it was obvious that people were into him. And it's the old Dusty Rhodes mentality. And I, I'm really curious about his baby face run in Florida, even though it was so short lived and so abbreviated. But I'm really curious Eddie Graham's involvement in that because I've told this story a million times. Eddie Graham didn't turn Dusty Rhodes baby face. The fans did. And Eddie would come out in the arena and apparently would turn his back to the ring. And when Dusty was announced, he would listen for the reaction. And one day he said, that's it. The time is now because Dusty was so popular and was getting so many of these cheers. So I kind of feel, you know, maybe something similar happened in Florida because even as a heel, when he came back over this really abbreviated couple of weeks, the guy was like getting cheers like you've never heard. Like it was as the heel, he was just being literally just cheered into the ring. So an incredible, incredible performer. If you never got the chance to see Billy Graham live at his peak in the seventies, you truly did miss jump something, Jeff. Well, let me uh, just uh, touch on a couple things that you mentioned. First of all, Vince McMahon, by, by all accounts that I've read, when he decided he was going to make Billy Graham his, his champion, uh, and have, uh, you know, and Bruno was finally going to step away from the belt. He told him, you're going to come in. You're going to have the belt. Uh, you're going to win the belt. And this is the date you're going to lose the belt. Like he had already planned that he was going to hold the belt for, uh, I think it was a nine month run. Uh, this was not going to be a, uh, a Stan Stasiak or an Ivan Koloff, you know, where you had it for, you know, maybe a, like a week or two. He was going to, he was committed to having him wear the belt for nine months. And he says, and then I'm going to take it off you. So this is not like Billy Graham, you know, Oh, I had no idea. Uh, no, he specifically told him that, right. but. I think what Billy Graham, after seeing the reaction he got as a champion, was hoping for that, you know, hey, you know what? This is still really hot. Let's extend this out, uh, you know, for another six months or whatever. You know, as an alternative, as you were sitting there talking, uh, and I, of course, uh, wasn't listening to what you were saying. That's a little rib. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but what I was thinking of, you know, what he could have done is Vince Sr. could have said, OK, look, I'm taking this belt off. you. I'm going to give it to the kid. Uh, but here's what I'm going to do for you because I, I still think that there's something there, uh, that can be used. Uh, and I still think that, you know, you have a, a charisma and a draw. So what I want to do is I want to make you another Andre, right? I'm going to, I'm going to book you 
but I'm going to send you out to all these different territories. Uh, you know, you can go to Florida, you can go to Houston, you can go back to Vern, uh, you can go to St. Louis. Because let's be honest, superstar Billy Graham on the card meant ticket sales. People will go see this guy. So what you do is after he's lost a belt, he gets a few rematches with, uh, with Backlund. By the way, you know, the match we're going to talk about today, am I incorrect in saying this was seven months after, after Backlund and won the title and they're still stretching this program out. And ironically, according to some statistics, I, I actually researched last night, quality research by the oh, booker. Very nice. This was the next to last match that they had. They had a match at essentially like a spot show. And, uh, I can't remember what the name of the town was somewhere in New Jersey. And then he was gone and didn't come back until 1982 when he did the karate guy, uh, gimmick. That, that was going to be a question. How close was this match to the end of his run in the Federation before he it, left? It literally might have been the next to, next to last match that he had. Like, so we're looking at maybe just a couple of weeks, even wow. within the same week. And there's a reason I'm asking, Jeff, and I'll bring it up when we start okay. that review. So so anyway, Vince Sr. says this to him, and he books him uh, the way that he booked Andre. And Billy Graham gets the chance to go to these different territories where he's always going to be a draw. He's, you know, he's always going to get the – because, you know, all you got to say is, uh, you know, I, I'm calling for, a, you know, like this feud. I'm, I'm going to bring in the biggest – I'm calling in superstar Billy Graham. Boom, you cut to the promo of Billy Graham. I'm coming to – to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and and by God, Vern Gagne reached out to me, and he says, I want you to come in, and all of a sudden, boom, ticket sales through the roof. You know, hey, uh, I'm, I'm going to be in St. Louis, and uh, whoever wants me to come in and be their part, the way they used Andre, except unlike Andre, no slight to Andre, Billy Graham cuts a fucking promo, and all of a sudden, everyone's like, well, hell yeah, I'm going to go see that. What? A Miami Beach Convention Center? Dusty and Billy Graham taking on, uh, you know, Ivan Koloff and Pat Patterson, whoever. I'm just making up a team there. You know, like, hell yeah, I'm going to be at that show because Billy's going to cut a friggin' awesome promo. And they cut back to Dusty, and Dusty Rhodes is like, you know, hey, we don't like one another, but by God, uh, I know this man, he gave me his word, and you know, just like Dusty would do. And you yeah. got all of a sudden, you know, 5,000 people or, or whatever in the convention center. And if he had been used that way, you could have bled this out a few years, and then you bring him back to the garden. A few years has gone by, Backlund's getting a little stale, and you bring Billy in. Now, what you could have done to make that transition slightly smoother is, you know, Backlund goes over uh, superstar Billy Graham everywhere, and Backlund is put over strong as your new champion. And then, you know, Billy Graham says, you know what? Uh, I'm not getting a fair shot. I, I want Backlund anywhere I can get him. So uh, they uh, present a tag team opportunity. How many times have we seen this, Barry? Uh, at the TV tapings in uh, Allentown or Hamburg or whatever. And it's Bob Backlund and whoever, uh, Chief Jay Strongbow, uh, taking on Billy Graham and let's just say uh, Ken Patera or whatever. Wow. And Ken Patera turns on Billy Graham. Speaking of guys that were kind of a, a ripoff of Billy Graham in a lot of ways. Ken Patera was too. 100%. Yep. And so they turn on Billy Graham and boom, Billy Graham's made as a baby face, you know, and I, maybe in hindsight, that would have been a great idea. Maybe it would have completely shit the bed, you know, who knows? Uh, but I think it would have made for a really interesting set of circumstances. Billy Graham as a tour, as a, uh, you know, as an act, the way that Andre was, and quite frankly, as the road warriors would have been if they had come along eh, maybe five years earlier, that was something I think that led to the road warriors getting stale in different territories was instead of having them come in, 
and, you know, be hot shots at big cards, you know, people got to see them over and over and their act got stale. Billy Graham would have stayed fresh and, and wouldn't have gotten stale. You know, and this is, it, you bring up a great point. And I, I do think the future of Billy Graham would have been as a baby face. And I, I actually, as I was watching the match that we're going to be reviewing, it said to me, watching his offense and things, I think he would have been a much, much better baby face. But, you know, traveling acts like that were also dying down at that stage where, you know, you had Andre and you had Dusty. You also had Haystack Calhoun, right? And yes. By 1979, that was about it for Haystack. I think by 80 or 81, he was basically done and off the road. And so you could have plugged Billy right into that spot. He could have done, you know, Friday night in Atlanta and Saturday in St. Pete, Monday at the Garden, whatever. You're a hundred great scenario. Sadly, you know, none of this will ever come to fruition. But had Vince basically taken him under his wing the same way he did Andre and farmed him out, I think the wrestling business would be much different, actually. You know, uh, I want to mention something that I read because I think it was pretty spot on. You know, Barry. One of the people that uh, loves our show like no other is is our old friend Howard Baum. We are his favorite show on the Arcadia Network. <clears throat> anyway. oh, bullshit. <laughs> well, so Howard wrote a little tribute, and I want to read it because I have to say I think Howard really nailed it. He says, uh, rest in peace, superstar. He shone like no other for five years and paid for it with the rest of his life. Hear me now, no wrestler ever, not Dusty, not Hogan, not Flair, filled an arena with their presence like the superstar. Seeing him live was akin to seeing a psychedelic Godzilla in person. It just didn't seem possible that one human being could have so much going on. If they had turned him and kept the belt on him, he would have been the biggest thing the business had ever seen. He was too far ahead of his time for his own good, and if he were to debut now, he'd still stand head and shoulders above the pretenders. One of about five people who made me a fan, if you were there, you know. If not, it's like describing fuchsia to a blind person. You'll never do it justice. Godspeed, superstar. I got to say, that last line about describing fuchsia to a blind person, I read that and I was like, wow, Howard... Howard absolutely nailed it because that's exactly what superstar Billy Graham was in the seventies bear. It was, it's, you gotta remember too, he was on the, he was on the lower rung of talent of being a, a wrestler. Like you weren't going to get a lot out of Billy and it didn't matter. I think Howard's words really because describing fuchsia to a blind person is a really you can't describe it because by all accounts, maybe it shouldn't have worked, but it did work. There was a definite charisma that he had, and it wasn't that bottled standard charisma that I think a lot of guys now have, which is I don't want to say it's phony, but it's manufactured. Like it's, you could just watch them. They've taken these acting the fucking superstar. Didn't Billy Graham didn't he? Billy Graham could stand in the middle of the ring, not say a word and the fucking place would lose it. And I'll tell you the first time I ever saw him live was that he was working a card at Miami highlight. And I think he made his debut in Miami at that card. And highlight, I don't know if you'd ever been to Miami highlight, but they had these glass boxes where 
the highlight players would come out and they could watch what was taking place. It's almost like a dressing room, but it's outside and it's surrounded by glass. So the wrestlers would sometimes go into this little, I guess, room and they would watch the matches. And I was walking by that. And as I walked by it, Billy Graham was there and I looked at him and it was like, holy fuck, look at Billy Graham. It's unbelievable. And this is the crazy part, and I'll, I never forgot this, Jeff, to this day, in a, a territory that had so much talent, as Florida had. Everybody went through. When Billy Graham was there, it made it even bigger. Like It, it was like, to me, he might have been the biggest fish we had, which, again, you know, we had everybody. Who didn't we have? But when we saw Billy Graham, it literally was just something different. He might have been the biggest fish we ever had. So Howard's words, and the key with that too, Jeff, it's indescribable. It, it's a very hard thing if you weren't there to try and describe what he had. You could try to copy it. You can, you know, it just doesn't work. And I think Jesse's a great example because Jesse Ventura literally from A to Z copied everything that Graham did. And, and I don't mean as a knock on Jesse, but in the professional wrestling world, he was, he never even came even close to what Billy Graham was. No, but when, you know, when Jesse uh, turned to commentary, when Jesse turned to uh, other uh, you know, even when he got into politics, a lot of the stuff he was doing, the promos that he was doing as a color commentator and as a politician, he was doing Billy Graham, you know. And right. by the way, let me mention, uh, since this is a thing now, I don't, you know, honestly, I don't know if AEW does this, but I know that uh, I believe the WWE still does it. Yeah, not one single scripted interview. Can you imagine superstar Billy Graham gets handed a script by some uh, <laughs> some guy that, uh, you know, is just fresh out of, you know, college and says, oh, yeah, here's the promo uh, for your match coming up in Miami. He would have looked at him like, who the fuck are you here? You know, and like uh, Gordon Sully goes, OK, this is a Wednesday night in Miami. You're uh, you're facing Dusty Rhodes. Boom. He does two minutes right off the fucking cuff. Take that script and shove it up your fucking ass. I have a talent to come up with these things that'll put asses in the seats. That's what Billy Graham and, quite honestly, Dusty Rhodes and a lot of other guys had. There was no fucking script. And let's uh, also mention, uh, you know, we did very quickly as we we're going through the, the names of it. You know, Hulk Hogan, his act was Billy Graham. OK, yep. and on one hand, I'll say he understood that. Taking that guy's act and kind of, uh, you know, giving it some of his own spin and stuff like that would make him money. And he became a fucking legend. You got to give him credit for that. But let's not pretend that Hulk Hogan is completely Terry Bollet, uh, you know, like uh, just riffing. No, you're fucking riffing off superstar Billy Graham, you know. And uh, so anyway, let's let's talk our match of the week now, Barry, because, you know, when we found out that uh, that superstar had died, you know, immediately my, you know, I thought, oh, well, we, we've got to fucking uh, do a match from from superstar Billy Graham's. Uh, and, and quite honestly, this was not my original intention. But, you know, I felt like this is a nice way for us to you know, kind of pay homage to the guy for everything he's meant to the business in our own small little way. So, as I said, September 16th, 1978, the Philadelphia Spectrum, Barry, as uh, I believe the announcers are Vince McMahon and Dick Lane, because I think Dick Lane was one of the guys that would do the announcing for uh, Prism. Uh, which is where this came from. And, uh, 
uh, you know, as I said, it's near the end of the, the run for the program. It's a Sicilian stretcher match, which is, uh, interesting because neither one of these guys are even Italian in any way. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. yeah, but, yeah, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, <laughs> yeah. and I have to say, I think this might have been the first ever Sicilian stretcher match I've ever watched. I gotta say, I love this fucking gimmick. You know, because <laughs> you, you gotta have the guy unconscious. Carrie and I did my Peter Brady voice break there, Barry. Uh, you have to have the guy unconscious. He's put on a stretcher and carried out of the ring by uh, the two referees that are assigned to the ring and the ring area. Other than that, there's no fucking rules. Uh, you can pretty much do what you want. Now, that being said, before we get into the discussion of the match, you're not going to see any uh, uh, ladders, table spots. I know uh, Sammy Guevara, uh, you know, jumping off the friggin' third balcony and, you know, risking life and limb. No Darby Allen, you know, trying to mutilate himself or, or kill himself. Uh, by the way, did you hear Darby Allen supposedly wants to climb Mount Everest? Yes, I did. did. That's, that's, that's legit. Yeah, that's completely insane, by the way. But it's wow. interesting as a side note. But anyway, so there's none of that. This is uh, late 70s, two guys going out there, and it's, you know, just nailing each other, but no super spectacular spot. So anyone who's going into this, and when we post a video to it, thinking, ooh, yeah, we're going to see this kind of fucking epic spot. No, it's just two guys working the crowd, and I really enjoyed it, and I fucking love the gimmick. Barry, what would you think of this match? So it's a, it's a fun match, and I don't think I had ever seen a Sicilian stretcher match uh, before or after this match. I don't remember another one. And uh, Tony Khan, we're calling you out. We want to see a Sicilian stretcher match. And it's it's really funny, and what it basically amounts to, and then we'll you know, we'll talk about the match. But the ending is to me is is kind of a hoot. You know, he the guy has got to be carried out of the ring <laughs> by two referees. And we'll talk again about So the first thing that I noticed, and this was one of the reasons I was asking you, how soon was he gone from the Federation? In the beginning of this match, actually before the match even starts, Billy Graham is a babyface. Billy Graham is over with the crowd. He hands his T-shirt, what looks to be to a little kid. And then when he takes off, or a bandana, when he takes off his T-shirt in the ring, he throws it to the crowd. So I, in my head, I'm going, what, what, what's that about? Why is Billy Graham doing that? And even in the beginning of the match, when he's talking, he's talking as a baby face. Like he's really coming. Made me wonder, Jeff. I think, you know, I, we always know that he was unhappy about dropping the title. I think he was positioning himself as a baby face. And I, that's what I saw with the first few minutes. It is standard stuff. They're, they're in a, I guess, collar and elbow. And I'm not making this up. I've been watching wrestling at this point. This will be my 52nd year in, in, a, by, in a few months. And uh, I don't think I've ever seen anybody three and a half minutes in collar and elbow. So that that right there should tell you they they literally just collared and elbowed for three and a half to four minutes. There's a lot of rest holds, but the concept of the match, which is great because they'll they'll get this thing in the ring and, you know, one guy will start to put the other guy on the uh, stretcher. The referees will come in. It's disrupted. There's double juice. But I do love the ending because very also telling to me. Billy, they get Billy Graham on a stretcher and they get him to the, the side of the ring. They can't, they can't lift him. That's first off, you know, if you're going to do a Sicilian stretcher match where 
two guys have to pick up a guy who's 275 pounds, make sure these guys are strong enough. They can't get him over. So they take him to the edge of the ring and kind of dump him out of the ring with it. <laughs> they do, right? Are like, are I'm you not saying, are you saying there was some appearance of slight favoritism to back? Yes. Him? Yeah. It, so look, what it, they do is they pick back him up and then kind of toss him off. Oh, he's still there. He's kicking him. Screaming. Yeah. Yeah. But when they get Graham on the thing, it, and it, it happens so quick. I've never seen referees move this quick in their lives. <laughs> they literally do this in like three seconds. They get him. They just get him to the side and just dump him out of the ring and the match is over and Backlund goes wild. It, it looks really bizarre. It, yeah, <laughs> that's, I'll leave it at that. It just looks really bizarre. This was not a well thought out gimmick, I don't think, but at the same time, highly entertaining. I did get a real kick out of it, but honestly, th- this is, as I watch this, and again, you know, we're always going to watch this shit and we're going to look back and go, oh, what if and whatever. I think he was trying to position himself as a baby face in this match, at least in the beginning of this match. So a couple things. I will uh, agree with you to a certain extent. I think more than being a quote unquote good match, this is absolutely an entertaining match. Okay. Yes. Uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, the, the gimmick itself, the announcers, uh, Vince, I've said it before, Vince back at this point as an announcer was really pretty good. Uh, he, he could be, be very good calling the quote, you know, the play by play as the play by play guy, throwing in a few snarky comments at the heels. Uh, that was good stuff. Or let's be honest, if it was a real stinker, he could be, you know, just kind of a little bit full of himself. Vince, this was a, I thought good Vince, uh, working with Dick Lane. Uh, I think they both did a good job of explaining the rules of the match. The referee was a Dick Worley was the main ref. Yes. That's correct. okay. Uh, and so, uh, I, I'm not sure who the other guy was, but yeah. So what would happen is like, as an example, like Backlund, I think had, uh, uh, Graham at one point, like in a, uh, a rear chin lock slash, uh, I don't think it was a sleeper hold, but Graham would go down and they'd, boy, they'd run the stretcher into the ring. They'd put him on the stretcher. And then of course, Graham would get off the stretcher or he'd slap the stretcher away and say, no, I'm not done yet. And then they do the same thing with Backlund. And that whole interplay with the stretcher was really a lot of fun. And then like, you know, there was a point where Backlund, I think, used the stretcher as, as a gimmick and, uh, you know, nailed the uh, superstar Billy Graham with it. Uh, so Backlund, is the first guy that goes and gets color. Okay. One of the things I loved about Backlund at this point, and you know, Backlund, let's be honest, by the time he lost the belt, he was really done. Okay. But at this point in time, Backlund was, you got to give him credit. He was super fucking over with this crowd because this crowd is just going ape shit uh, during the whole match. But I love the fact that he gets, he's on the, on the floor, he gets color. Uh, and he comes back in and, and, uh, or he's laying on the floor and, and Graham, I think, kicks him or hits him or something like that. And Backlund starts going into convulsions, which is just, it's just a fucking scream. Like, you know, and Vince is like, I think he's going into convulsions, you know, and while all this is going on and they do the shot where into the ring and you see a guy selling popcorn walking back, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Apparently that yes. guy, uh, it's not, uh, not going to affect my ability to buy God earn a living. Uh, that was good. Let's talk about. Arnold Scolan's jacket, Barry. Oh, man. Let's talk about him being referred to by Gary Michael Capetta, who, by the way, will be at CWF Legends Fan Fest, which is taking place, Jeff, just literally, I think, not too far off of of this recording. Gary Michael Capetta referring to him by his nickname of Golden Boy, Arnold Scolan. What what made him a golden boy? What what makes (laughs) somebody a golden boy? 
That's like calling Barry Rose the bushy-haired uh, Gary. <laughs> Barry Rose, you know, uh, if he was the Golden Boy, trust me, it was like uh, twenty years before that. But uh, yeah, he has uh, a a jacket that screams not only seventies but bad seventies. You know, that's pretty I, awesome. Actually, yeah, not, <laughs> I thought it was pretty awesome. But uh, you know, interestingly, uh, nobody came up uh, with uh, superstar Billy Graham. Like no Grand Wizard, no anybody, which uh, was also, I think, a kind of a telling thing uh, as far as uh, when he's going out. So I think one thing that I really thought was interesting was at the end. Uh, spoiler alert for a uh, match that's now forty-five years old. Uh, Backlund gets to win on a controversial decision as the ref seemed to be. They seem to be favoring Backlund just a little bit, Barry. I don't just know if you noticed little, that. Yeah, yeah. But so, uh, so Graham is on the floor and he's, you know, he's, you know, kind of doing the, uh, disgruntled heel. I can't believe they jobbed me kind of thing. And Backlund's raising his hand. He's bloody, uh, in the ring and the crowd's going nuts. And I don't know if it was Vince or Dick Lane that said it, but they said, I have nothing to say because the crowd has said it all, which I thought was a, I'm like, man, that's a good fucking line for an announcer to use, you know? And this crowd was really, uh, interactive with this, uh, crowd. uh, you know, uh, I know Philadelphia, uh, crowds bury, uh, for like Flyers games and, and, uh, and of course for, uh, Eagles games and stuff like that. Uh, wrestling crowds, uh, in Philadelphia. I'm not talking ECW arena because we all know that those people were pretty much nuts, but was the spectrum known as a, uh, a really, uh, a vociferous crowd necessarily compared to some of the other rings in the Northeast? Do you know? I, I believe so too. And again, that's the, you know, that the spectrum was gone. Many years before I moved here, but, uh, Philly, you know, Philly's not a quiet town, as you just mentioned. And, uh, whatever the sports are, the fans are extremely passionate. I do think it was, but when you watch this tape, uh, this match, you can see like that, that crowd is pretty heavily into this match. Oh yeah. No, no, no question about that. So, uh, just as we wrap up uh, this particular portion, uh, of our discussion of superstar Billy Graham, uh, Barry, just, uh, right off the top of your head, cause I know you, you have most of that CWF stuff ingrained somewhere in the, uh, medulla oblongata. It's the first time we ever Ooh, used that reference. Nice, Barry. nice. Tell us how many times Billy Graham was in fact in CWF, uh, the years, how long he was there, that kind of thing. Do you remember right off the top of your head? Absolutely. Came in in November of 1976 and was the beauty Billy Graham and Ox Baker came in, I believe the same week. So, we got both these guys. Billy stayed until I think he won the WWWF title and then actually came back and defended that title multiple times in the state of Florida while he was the champion. And that was the first time we had really seen that. Bruno didn't do it. Pedro Morales, Koloff, State, you know, none of those guys did it. Billy Graham did it and actually spent a lot of time as champion in the state of Florida, lost the title came back but he had i guess he had essentially what would be three runs that 76 to 77 came back as the champion wasn't part of a program other than wrestling dusty a lot came back in 79 three weeks maybe four weeks max then was gone and then the next time we saw him when he was doing the kung fu gimmick so i i have to say that uh the one thing, you know, when you talk about matches that are out there, and, and of course there's obviously matches with, uh, with Backlin, with Dusty, uh, I think the title change with Bruno maybe is out there and some other stuff. You know, the one series of matches that I really wish we could see with superstar Billy Graham is in the mid seventies when he was up in the AWA, uh, and he was doing stuff with Wahoo. 
Uh, and I think of Wahoo at that point in 1975 and Billy Graham, who was really starting to hit his stride and come into his own. I think that would have been fucking epic. And it's a shame that none of that stuff is out there, as far as I know, on YouTube or uh, Barry's favorite uh, service, uh, Daily Motion. So anyway, Barry, uh, if you will, at this point, join me. Let's raise an adult beverage to the memory of uh, Eldridge Wayne Coleman, the great, the great superstar Billy Graham. Godspeed to you, my friend. Very always a good time to do a little Florida man or not. Are you prepared and or ready to go? Neither, but let's go ahead. Okay, then. Our first headline, uh, care to see <clears throat> CNN. Man breaks into Rob Wendy's but stops to make himself dinner first. <clears throat> the story continues. He's a modern-day hamburglar, police say. And he was caught on camera making himself a burger before robbing a Wendy's. Patrick Benson, 34, was arrested Saturday and charged with burglary, grand theft, and attempted burglary, according to a news release, a news release, easy for me to say, from the police department. Security footage uh, at a, a restaurant appears to catch Benson in the act and also reveals a strange part of the process. After breaking the windows with a brick or large rocks after hours, Benson started up the grill, made himself a burger, and then ate it. And only after his meal did he grab the safe and make his escape. That, that's just a classic headline. Barry Rose, <laughs> Florida man or not. Oh, there's so much to digest there as well. I am going to say, and I did not. So you said that Kim was aware of this one? No, no, no. One of the stories. Oh, one of the stories. Okay. Yeah, because I, I hadn't seen this this or even heard this story at all. And what, you a fan of Wendy's, now, did, by the way? Does this, now, does this reflect on the management of this particular Wendy's. Well, I, yeah, it definitely does. But are you a fan of Wendy's? Do you well, we've uh, discussed this? I, I, I think they've made some improvement over the last year or so, especially with their French fries. I would say, you know, is, is it my absolute go-to burger place? No, not in any way. But, you know, if Kim says, uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm coming home. It's late. Uh, I want to stop and pick up something. Is Wendy's okay? I'm not going to say no the way I might, you know, to like, uh, you know, McDonald's or uh, Taco Viva or Taco Bell or whatever. I keep thinking Taco Viva is still with us, Barry. <laughs> so, is, is there any Taco Vivas left in the country? I don't know. But, you know, it, so the answer is, is it my go-to uh, hamburger place? No. Would I really pitch a fit if she brought it home? No. I am so, going, back to the story. Yeah, I am going to say this is not the state of Florida. Eh, you would be incorrect. Jensen Beach, Florida, in Damn it. beautiful, luxurious Martin County, Barry. Uh, the next story, the headline reads, Groom chased by the cops to wedding ceremony in Dukes of Hazard car. Boss Hogg, nowhere to be found. Uh, Barry, the story continues. There are some moments in life where you take your love for a television show and implement it into your wedding. Yes, some folks do this. On this occasion, it all went down with the Dukes of Hazard car, famously known oh. as the General Lee. Is there a long discussion that has to be had with the bride before this all goes down? One would certainly hope so. This guy decided to go all out for his grand entrance to the wedding, even using the local police force to help. It's always nice when the cops help, you know. Yeah, well, you uh, want that. As the guests are in their seats for what looks to be a nice backyard wedding in the country, police sirens are heard, along with the sweet harmony of Waylon Jennings. I love Luke and Back Texas. Great song, Barry. Dukes of Hazard song. 
This is where things are taken to the next level. All of a sudden, the General Lee is seen from a distance driving up the gravel driveway with smoke billowing from the tires, along with a classic car that obviously someone had to remake on their own dime. The local police department is closely following. I've been to a lot of weddings, but I've never seen the groom come scorching up the driveway while then hopping out of the General Lee and running to the altar. If this isn't one of the best entrances, entrances in wedding history, I'd like to enter it into whatever competition is out there. Barry Rose, Florida man or not. All right. I was wrong on the last one. What do you, do you like the Dukes of Hazard, by the way? Uh, you know, one? honestly, I, I think if I saw one or two episodes, it'd be a lot. You know, of course, Catherine Bach was, a you know, wearing those uh, Daisy Dukes. But I uh, eh, just never a big, a big fan of Dukes of Hazard. Nothing yeah, wrong with the show. I was just never a big fan. My favorite memory of the Dukes of Hazard has nothing really to do with the Dukes of Hazard. But when I was in high school, and I believe it was 11th or 12th grade, there what, uh, was 53 years ago at this that point. That was, uh, yeah, well, yeah, Greg Good was my, was my teacher. Yes. Uh, so yeah. He was but, in his 30th year at the school. There, <laughs> it was again his 30th. He's getting he ready for retirement. <laughs> he, uh, so in any case, there was a, uh, a teacher, and I'm not making this up to tell you how strange this was. There was a teacher that called a kid a penis <laughs> at school. He goes, why are you acting like a penis? So uh, the story made the rounds, and the teacher obviously was called into question by the uh, the school principal. Jeez, and the, you just imagine what would happen now. If that oh happened. my god! But so he was called into, and the story he gave. This was a teacher. This is not a student. This is a teacher. Was that he was not calling the kid a penis? He was calling the kid an enus. After Enos, who was a character on the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> How is that for a fucking story? Yeah. Long story short, I think he still received a suspension, uh, for calling the kid a penis, but yeah, that was my favorite. I'll say this one. The first one was Florida. I said it wasn't. I'm going to say this one is not Florida, Jeff. Bushy Fork, North Carolina. Oh, right. not Florida. So let me ask you, Barry, while we're on the subject of wedding entrances, have you seen the video that's out there uh, within the last few days of the bride and groom, and they go out to do like their first dance or whatever, and the groom lets the bride give him the uh, stole cone, the stone cold stunner. That guy sells the stunner oh, like man. I've never he, seen anybody. He sells it better than Vince did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> better than that's 90% actually of the 20. workers. That guy, that guy should be signed up immediately. He took a bump on a fucking dance floor, too. Yes. yes. It was very funny. Next story, Barry. <clears throat> Suspected drunk driver tried to switch places with dog during traffic stop. <clears throat> Suspected drunk driver was arrested by police after trying to switch places with his dog during a traffic stop. The uh, police department said the officer approached the vehicle. Uh, they watched the entire process before the man got out of the passenger side, claimed he was not driving. Police added the man was, show, was showing clear signs. Barry, you're going to be shocked. Of intoxication. Hard and when asked about his alcohol consumption, he ran from the police officer. The man was apprehended shortly after, and the police uh, officer said they discovered the man got lost while driving. I can't imagine the intoxication had anything to do with that. He was also found, oh, another one, Barry. He was found to have two active warrants. Oh. Oh, yeah, two active warrants to go out driving, uh, allegedly intoxicated. 
after the man was uh, medically cleared at the hospital, he was booked into the jail for his warrants and was also charged with DUI under the influence of alcohol and or drugs. Uh, he was speeding uh, at 20 to 24 miles uh, over the speed limit. Again, always a good idea. Uh, and here's another one I always say, Barry, driving while license suspended. Yeah, this is like the big trifecta here. So uh, anyway, the dog, just in case you were uh, curious, Barry, was given to an acquaintance of the driver to take care of while the man is in jail. Barry Rose, Florida man or not? Uh, I actually heard this story the other day, and I didn't pay attention to where it took place. That's what I, you get. Yeah, I heard, I, but I did hear this as I was walking Ozzy uh, either yesterday or the day before in the morning. Flip the coin on this one. I'll say it's Florida. It is, in fact, Springfield, Colorado. Uh. Uh, and by the way, just for those of you who may uh, be wondering, I can tell you Oh, now I'm having trouble pulling the story up. Uh, there was a follow up story about the dog and saying that the dog was, uh, you know, was well. Uh, I thought that was pretty funny that enough people apparently inquired uh, about the whereabouts and uh, well-being of the dog that uh, Good. they did an entire separate a separate article on the fact that the dog was OK. Yeah. Here's our update, Barry. Who in the hell is barking? Obviously, it's the dog from this arrest, Barry. Right. The article continues. Uh, I found the update. And an update provided by the Springfield PD. They let the people know that the dog was given to an acquaintance of the man so that he could be cared for while he was in jail. While it may never be known whether or not the dog was in on the alleged ruse, the dog will not face charges and police let him go with just a warning. That's pretty fucking hilarious, Barry. Yeah. Barry, we are givers as always, and I just realized I've got two more stories for you. Barry, this one's kind of going to the archives because this story, 12 years old, Barry, but it's an oldie but a goodie. The headline reads, Gorilla Mascot Ambushed by Guy in a Banana Costume. Don't you hate when that happens, Barry? Reports say a teen who works in a gorilla suit says he was in shock when he recently got attacked by another kid who was wearing a banana costume. 16-year-old Brian Jenko says his summer job putting on the gorilla get-up to advertise for a cell phone store. Uh, The suit has a lot of padding, so getting tackled by the banana guy didn't hurt. But he says he couldn't see anything because the mask got pushed over his eyes. Store manager uh, Brandon Parham said last week that the attacker took a flying leap (laughs) like a Spartan in the movie 300. Did you ever see 300, Barry? I did. I love 300. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, they were referencing that movie. Uh, Parham called 911 as the banana. This is good, Barry. Peeled off down the street. See what they did there? The banana peeled off down the street oh. with other teams. Rest assured, unless you're a silverback gorilla, you have nothing to worry about when coming into this store. Barry Rose, Florida man or not. Some good creative writing here. This one is Florida. This one is definitely Florida. This one is not Florida. No! But it is Strongsville, Ohio. Uh, I, I just love the story. That was great stuff. So, Barry, our last uh, segment here is not, in fact, a Florida man. It is a return to a segment we've done before, though, called Bullshit or Not. Ah. Are you? I'm going to give you two stories, Barry. You have to tell me which one is true and which one is bullshit. All righty. <clears throat> First story. Austrian driver allowed Pastafarian headgear photo. A member of the satirical religion, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, demanded and won the right to wear a pasta strainer in his ID photo. That's the first story. Second story, German serial sexual 
marries Count Chocula, and a strange ceremony that is in no way legally sanctioned, a German man, wait, I'm just going to say, you know about those German guys. Oh, yeah. Married a box of Count Chocula as a performance art. The Perry Rose, which story is true and which story is bullshit? It's bullshit that someone married Count Chocula. I think we all know if somebody was going to marry any of those characters, it'd be Frankenberry. Yeah, so you're not a fan of Boo Berry? I like Boo Berry, too. I like them all, actually. Well, in fact, Barry, you'd be correct on this one. Only the Pastafarian is real, as reported by BBC News on July 14th, 2011. Barry, congratulations. You won this round of bullshit or not bullshit. Barry, we always love talking a little movies, and I know you love talking action films. Barry Rose, let's talk about a courtesy of our friends at Collider.com, the best action films of all time. I think I know what your number one would be, Barry, the alleged Christmas movie. Would that be close? That would be, yes. Okay, we're going to start off. Uh, before we get to the top ten, we're kind of kind of skim through uh, twenty five through eleven. Uh, twenty five, Barry. I'm a little I'm a little worried about this list when it starts off with two thousand eleven. Oh, it's Dominic Toretto and the gang. Fast Five. Uh, I Jeff, I I I think want to say we talked about it. Have you ever seen a Fast and Furious movie? Oh, of course, I've seen every stinking one of them. You have? Okay, I've never seen one. It's a guilty pleasure because my wife and I go and watch these movies and there's a new one coming out like in a week or so based right. on when we're recording this where we'll go there and we watch it. It's a dumb popcorn movie. Uh, I always say that at some point in the uh, series, they decided to make Dominic Toretto uh, a Jesus Christ like figure where uh, he can't die. He never gets cut, scratched or anything uh, despite, you know, falling from space. But uh it's a dumb popcorn movie. Get your, uh, Big gulp of soda or Slurpee or whatever and a big buttery popcorn. Sit back, turn your brain off, and join the film, except when you turn to each other and go, this is really stupid. Why did we pay money for this? But at the same time, you're enjoying yourself. That's number 25, the start of the list. Jumping ahead here, Barry, uh, number 23, Avengers Endgame. Were you a fan of the Avengers? I know we got some big Marvel fans in the group. Yeah, so you know, I we do. I I've seen some movies. I haven't seen. I'm definitely not a completist, so I haven't seen a lot of the uh, the films. Uh, but I've seen. I think I've seen one or two. Yeah, I uh, I like the Marvel movies. I enjoy them much like we just talked about the uh, the dumb Fast and Furious movies. You know, I know we have people that it's literally like the Marvel movies are some sort of guide to life. And they just, you know, like their life revolves around when is the next Marvel? My, my daughter and her husband, they stinking, uh, they love all the Marvel movies and stuff. I like them. I enjoy them. I enjoyed the Avengers movie. I'm not basing my life uh, in its forward trajectory on what happens in the Avengers Endgame. It was a good movie. I enjoyed it. You know, uh, kind of a, a couple surprises at the end. Uh, but did it completely change my life? No. Was it a good action movie? Yes. Number 22, a series I enjoyed much more, Barry, and I think you know that, 2007's The Bourne Ultimatum. Oh, yeah. We both like these movies, too. Great, great action movies. Uh, I think one of the best series out there and very current as well. Like it's when you watch these movies, you know, sometimes you can watch an action movie and 
they they come across as a little dated. You know, you're seeing shit that you may have seen previously. To me, the Born, the Born and the Mission Impossible series, they kind of set this bar, bring making everything current. And there's, I don't know, the last time you were at Universal Studios in Orlando, but there is a Born live action show that takes place. And I got to tell you, I was I saw it about a year and a half ago. I was blown away by it. You know, uh, I love, you know, we talked about Mission Impossible, the Bourne movies, James Bond. I, I don't think if you've listened to one or two episodes of this show, and if you have, what the fuck? Come on, give us more of a chance. But my love for James Bond movies is pretty uh, pretty well stated here. But there is a case that could be made that as much as I like the Daniel Craig movies, you know, the whole Bourne series, the Mission Impossible series, they may have taken the bar above the James Bond movies. There could be a case for that. I love uh, the Bourne movies. I love the Bourne Ultimatum. Great, great fight scenes, man. I'm just like tons yeah. of respect for Matt Damon for getting his ass in shape and learning some of the fighting techniques to make the fights, you know, believable car chases off the chain. And again, here's this old phrase that I've repeated probably infinitum here, Barry Saturday afternoon. It's raining fucking Bourne movie comes on. Uh, I'm hooked. You know, you got there me there. Is. So next number 21. Oops. I just was talking about the Daniel Craig movies. Barry, the one that started Daniel Craig is James Bond from 2006, Casino Royale. Barry, do you remember the opening part of that movie, the hardcore parkour, where, where I, he's like, I do, ahead. I do. It's uh, it was hardcore. That's a good description, hardcore parkour. So yes, I do. Oh my God, where he's literally jumping from a a, a building onto this like a uh, elevated like ladder structure, chasing after a suspect, and then uh, wow, there's some uh, great uh, chase scenes in it, and it really established because when when Daniel Craig was named as James Bond, huge controversy. First of all, he's a blonde haired guy. You know, right. it's like every time they pick a James Bond, there's some kind of issue. Well, right. you know, uh, Sean Connery was uh, technically from Scotland, so how could he be? And uh, this guy, you know, the the one guy, the, the funny thing is that really fits the embodiment of what Ian, when Ian Fleming drew and created the character of James Bond, was uh, what you call the uh, George Lazenby. He looks like what Ian Fleming wanted, uh, you know, James Bond to be. But I thought Daniel Craig had a really good run. He had a couple of movies that weren't quite as great as Casino Royale. He had some other movies that were really, really good. Uh, you know, so out of the five Daniel Craig James Bond movies, I think three are a big thumbs up. The other two, uh, let's just say thumbs towards down. Not that they were horrible, horrible movies, but just not as good as the other three. At number 20, Barry, 1997 director John Woo, as we had John Travolta, Nicolas Cage in Face Off. Yeah, Face Off. Wow. Yeah, I like that too. Face Off's a fun movie too, and it's a uh, you know you you got Nicolas Cage who was pretty hot at that time, and you also have John Travolta who also was pretty hot at that time, and you put these two guys together. It's a really interesting story. Excellent movie. A lot yeah. of fun. A lot of action. They they essentially switched faces and identities. And yeah. one is a career criminal. The other one's an FBI guy. And to see them switch, like the guy that was the criminal becomes the cop and has to be subdued. And the guy that was the cop becomes the criminal and has to become over the top. And it was really kind of a, a fun exercise watching these guys. Uh, and, yeah, John Woo was uh, such a great director. I love John Woo movies. At number oh, nine. What's that? Is John Woo still with us? Uh, I believe he is. I don't know that he's making films anymore. Uh, he had his run okay. in the United States where, uh, because he was really popular, like making movies 
in Hong Kong, uh, with the, I'm trying to think of the name of the actor now. Um, uh, he might, he might actually be up here. Uh, Chow Young Fat was, Chow uh, Young Fat, yeah. yeah, was, was the guy that, uh, was his big movie star that he made a lot of movies with. Now at number 19, Barry, it's Police Story from 1985. Did you like the Jackie Chan movies, Barry? Eh, not a big fan, to be honest with you. See, I like Jackie Chan. What I especially liked is because Jackie Chan did all his own stunts. I liked the end of the movies when they would show the outtakes of him just getting brutalized by screwing up somehow during a stunt. And, you know, you'd see him jumping. From, there's a famous scene where he jumps from one building to a fire escape on another one, and he legitimately breaks his ankle doing it. Oh. And, and you see them like they had to stop production of the film for like, you know. Two months while his broken ankle healed to a certain extent. Yeah, I like Jackie Chan movies, but you know, not not for everyone. I get that. Now at number eighteen, I'm going to tell you right now, Barry, 1968. If you don't like this movie, we are fucking ending this podcast, and I'm finding a new co-host, Steve <laughs> okay. McQueen and fucking Bullet. Great, great movie. Oh, come we can on, yeah. With this podcast, <laughs> we could. Yeah, how could I not? What a what a just an amazing amazing film and. Steve McQueen too, and I. Steve McQueen. How old was he when he died? Early fifties, maybe like. 50? Yeah, he may. I think his last movie was. Um, God, he played a bounty hunter. Uh, I know he did a movie called I think Tom Horn, and then he made a movie where he was a. It was a real life story of a bounty hunter. Uh, right, it was around nineteen eighty, and I think he died pretty soon after uh, those two films were made. Uh, very sad because he was just a legendary action film star. And this is Steve McQueen literally at the height of his stardom at the height of his power. And this is the movie that really introduced the car chase into the American film lexicon. Uh, and good Lord, Barry, it's been almost what, 60 years since this movie first came out. Yeah. And when you hear Steve McQueen, he buckles that seatbelt and shifts the car into gear to chase after the bad guys. And you hear those wheels of spinning and it's, it's fucking go time. And, but it's also, besides being a fantastic car chase, one of the greatest of all time, it's a great story about a guy trying to find a missing witness, uh, that the, the mob is trying to bump off. Great story. Uh, highly recommended bullet. If you've never seen it, why the fuck not? Uh, at number 17, are you not amused, Barry Rose, by 2000's Gladiator? A lot of fun. Gladiator's a lot of fun. Great action movie. I remember seeing it, and I'll tell you the funny thing. We, uh, I mean, funny, uh, slightly psychotic, but my ex was pregnant with Zach when we saw the movie Gladiator. Zach born in 2021. Uh, I'm sorry. Really? He's that quite the youngster. <laughs> quite the, yeah, look at me, right? Uh, Zach born in 2001. So we saw that, and I think for a brief moment, we were uh, toying around the idea of naming our child Maximus uh, until maybe common sense and reality set in. And we said, yeah, maybe not. But uh, That would have been a great story, though. What you would have did? Well, we named him after the Russell Crowe character. <laughs> Max, exactly. Good Lord. But we actually, we really Next did. Time I see Zach, I'm going to go, Maximus, my man. What's up? I'm not even sure if he even knows that. That's the funny part. But. We definitely toyed around the idea. We had several conversations about it. Uh, I don't know what made us come to our senses and rule that name out, but uh, what a great movie. And I was never a big fan of the Roman gladiator type films. And I think this one was just completely different. This one and then Gerard Butler did one. Remember that film? You about 300? 300, which I also thought was really, really good. 
Do they come out near each other? Was it similar time-wise or no? Uh, I want to say it was, if it wasn't the same time, it was within a couple of years, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah but, uh, no, Gladiator, uh, father to a murdered child, husband to a murdered wife, uh, is, and what Joaquin Phoenix says, the evil emperor. Just really a good story. And that ending, Barry, you know, we, we've recently done, uh, a, uh, an episode where we talked about great movie endings where he literally, uh, is going and he's running back to his home and he sees his, his wife and his child. And it's like one of those where you all of a sudden uh, someone's peeling onions, one of those kind of scenes. Number 16, Barry, I got to tell you, I've seen this movie recently and you want to talk about a great, I'm not like one of these guys that wants to watch the, you know, I'm not Quentin Tarantino. I don't watch these Sonny Chiba movies, uh, you know, with the, the bad dub dialogues, but Barry, are you a fan or have you ever seen the, I think it's the two movies, uh, there's the original and then there's part two of The Raid. I don't think I ever have. No. The, where he, oh, guy, no, I did. The guy goes into the building, the cop. And yeah, he's oh, trying, it's oh. Uh, Malaysia. It's from, yeah, it's from I, another country. It might be, yeah. But oh it my is God, fucking fantastic. And it has, uh, you know, I remember the old standard on the uh, Joe Bob Briggs. Remember, remember Joe Bob Briggs? Love Joe Bob. Yeah, sure. he used to have this standard on the highest body count in a movie. And I remember for the longest time, the standard was Invasion USA with Chuck Norris. And this movie, I think, tops Invasion USA's body count probably in the first 20 minutes of the film. <laughs> I mean, it's, because it is just nonstop. It's crazy. It's not. And it's, you know what it's like? It's like that uh, Bruce Lee movie called Game of Death. I mean, it's yes. not exactly, but there's a similarity where, you know, Bruce Lee in that movie is going floor to floor and he's facing new challenges. This is obviously updated. It's a, it's essentially a building and these cops, but you know, there's so many twins. I don't, I don't want to spoil it if you've never seen it, not you, Jeff, personally, but listeners, because there are twists and turns, and there's a big twist that takes place. But it is a great movie. I want to say we you recommended it to me a couple of years back, and I think I caught it on HBO. And then there was another one, and for some reason, I forget why, but I couldn't watch that one. I don't know. Maybe it was no subtitle. I don't know. There was something bizarre about it, but I couldn't watch it. The fucking raid, though, highly recommended if you like action films. As is our choice at number 15 on this list from 1992. I referenced John Woo earlier and his movies with Chow Young-Fat. There was one called The Killer from 1989, which is a great movie. But his most famous movie from that period and working with Chow Young-Fett is 1992's Hard Boiled. And holy shit, you want to you wanna get a recommendation on a film? This is a great, great movie. There are so many iconic scenes. Every John Woo movie, by the way, has a scene where like uh, the action's getting ready to start and you see doves flying. That's just like one of the, the staples of his movie. The way Hitchcock always had a little cameo where he's like getting off a bus or he's walking right. past the camera. Every John Woo movie has the scene where the, the doves are flying. Uh, and then this one, the, uh, wow, the action scenes, uh, there is a, uh, a go home scene. This doesn't spoil the ending of the movie, but, uh, Chow Young Fat's character is at a hospital and, uh, he's, uh, trying to, uh, I don't know if he's escaping from a group of, but he's carrying a baby essentially, uh, out of the maternity ward. He's trying to protect the child and he's shooting. While the baby, the baby's in his arms and he's like, you know, blah, 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 trying to escape from the, uh, the mob and stuff. Uh, but just a lot of like literally poetic violence because, you know, there's a lot of slow mo uh, as he's diving some, you know, over a table while both guns are blazing. It's very stylistic, but tons of action. John Woo, Chow Young Fat, 
any combination of those two is always fucking epic. I can't recommend Hard Boiled enough. And Barry, you referenced Bruce Lee just a minute ago. Number 14, it's 1973's Enter the Dragon. I mean, my God. And I, I can still to this day watch Bruce Lee movies. There is something that's there. And I'm not always sure, and I'm assuming it's Bruce himself. Uh, and I guess it was this, the unusual style of kung fu that he was, that he was putting forth. So I, Enter the Dragon to me is probably the best Bruce Lee movie, though you, you can make a case for a couple of others, but fantastic. And I'll, I'll tell you what, we'll never know the real story about what happened with him. So, you know, the, the amazing thing is Bruce Lee has been, uh, he's been dead for going on 50 years now. And the guy's movies still stand up. They, yeah. uh, you know, it, the scenes you, you watch the incredible, uh, just technique, his style, just how incredibly ripped the guy was, you know, and j- just because of his workout techniques, the whole, what is it? The, uh, the punch of, no, no, screw this up. Like the one, the fingered punch of death or whatever, where he literally would be like one inch away from you and right. he would deliver this shot. That could literally incapacitate you. And his, uh, say, by the way, he was trained by the guy that was, uh, in the movie Ip Man, which is out there, which is also a fantastic series of, uh, of, uh, your, uh, karate kung fu, uh, movies that's, uh, uh, out there. And God, I can't think of the name that, uh, of the guy that's the star of those. But if you're ever looking for a good series of movies that are action based, Ip Man is the story of the guy that ended up being the teacher of a very young Bruce Lee. But this movie, Enter the Dragon, absolutely fantastic. Next, Barry. Oh, at number 13 from 2023, a movie that the Booker saw just a couple weeks ago. Oh. It's John Wick Chapter 4. Holy shit, Barry. Talk about a body count. I have not seen the latest. I did see the first three. When I saw the first one, too, it made a massive impression on me. And I was, uh, I remember I watched it on a Saturday. And I, I was uh, hanging out poolside with a friend of mine on Sunday who was Russian. And I said to him, I said, did you ever see these John Wick movies? There's a, the, and I don't know if, I don't remember two and three, but one was heavily, heavily Russian, obviously. And, uh, he said no. And I think he went home that night and watched it and texted me the next day and said, wow, holy shit, what a fucking movie. The John Wick films, gotta love Keanu Reeves too. Here's a guy, a nice guy that, we had a nice little Hollywood career, I think was more well known for being Keanu Reeves than a body of work. And then John Wick struck and that was it. This guy is set. So does a great job in these films. The direction is great. Love the John Wick series. How does four rank up with the first three? I, I, I fucking love every one of the movies. I don't consider one of them. Yeah. You've got some like, you know, James Bond. You've had great James Bond movies. Then you have movies that are, they're, they're good, but maybe not as great as some of the other ones. Every one of the John Wick uh, movies have been great in my estimation. Uh, a lot of people think that the last one is the best of the John Wick series, which I mean, that's kind of incredible that the fourth version, you know, a lot of times when you get to part four, uh, the, the quality of the series is really going downhill and credit yeah. to Keanu Reeves. Also, Keanu Reeves, man, the dude is fucking known from Bill and Ted. He's known for the fucking Matrix series. I mean, you know, we, we talk about actors that have had more than one series of films. Uh, I remember uh, recently we were talking about Sylvester Stallone having, you know, not just the Rocky series and the Rambo series. And, you know, now he's the Tulsa King and all this other stuff. So you got to give credit to guys that are not one trick ponies that can make themselves, you know, that they're so good. And uh, the the public loves them so much that they will accept them in a different role. 
and that uh, Keanu Reeves has had those other series, but now John Wick is uh, his, his fucking go-to. And as you said, based on everything that I've ever heard, Keanu Reeves is a good guy. And yeah. so you're happy to hear that a, a guy like that is having a success in his film series. At number 12, a guy that maybe is not such a great guy, but he's one hell of a fucking movie star. I'll give you that, Barry. I know you're not a super big fan, but Tom Cruise puts out some pretty fucking great action <laughs> films. Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, so look, I, I I guess I'm not the biggest fan. A lot of respect, though. Uh, here's another guy we talked about, Sylvester Stallone, recently, and we Tom Cruise is another guy that he has been relevant and a box office draw for over 40 years, and that's pretty fucking incredible. Yeah, you got to give the guy his due. You do, and you also have to give credit uh, to for Maverick because I thought the original Top Gun was. Eh, I really didn't care too much. I saw it in the theater and I was just, you know, I, none of it struck me. I saw Maverick and there was a moment, the Val Kilmer scene, obviously, where I had a tear in my eye. But at the same time, I walked out of Maverick and I said, I'm wrong. This was a great fucking movie and Tom Cruise did a great job. And that's exactly right, because he really does do a great job. Yeah, the amazing thing is the guy's, uh, I don't know if he's 60 yet, but he's got to be close. Uh, and he's like doing his own fucking stunts. And, and, and I remember, uh, not too long ago, a few months back, I asked you the question, is he literally the biggest movie star of all time? Not actor, not, not best actor. Is he the biggest movie star of all time? And I don't know if he's number one, but he's got to be in the conversation because like you say, 40 years, think about guys that were great movie stars. Uh, you know, Errol Flynn at some point was a great movie star. And then all of a sudden he had some bad career and uh, personal choices. He began to age out. Uh, John Wayne might be the only guy, uh, that had a career that was anywhere near the length of, uh, you know, of, of Tom Cruise. And in this movie, Mission Impossible Fallout, some of the fucking stunts in this movie, there is a, a battle with, uh, he and Henry Cavill, uh, where they're in a, uh, they're having a dogfight in helicopters. And I remember being in the theater watching this movie and I'm going, holy shit, this might be one of the greatest fucking action sequences I've ever seen. I mean, it's just super exciting. The plot is very twisted. Uh, you know, the fact that this Mission Impossible series, I think, started, I want to say like 1996. So you're talking about a movie series that has been going on now for the better part of 27 years. Plus, the next, uh, you know, installment is coming out, I think, in June. It's called Dead Reckoning. And it's part one of the, I guess, the wrap-up of the whole Mission Impossible series and his character of Ethan Hunt. But, yeah, you know, like him or not, and there's a lot of people that have said things about him personally that he's not the world's greatest human being, but he's one hell of a fucking movie star, and I give him that, and he makes great action films. And number 11, oh, Barry, I know we have guys in our group that just the mention of this film and what it's based on, there may be erections beginning, Barry, 2008. <laughs> it's the Dark Knight. Oh, Barry, we're talking Batman. I know one guy who right now is listening going, fuck yeah, Batman. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Chris Zaha, actually. Yeah, well, uh, I wasn't going to mention his name. Yeah. You're absolutely it right. Is, uh, I love the film. I, I thought the film was a masterpiece in a lot of ways. And it's got its haters that are out there. But at the same time, too, great acting. Great character development and kind of a different spin, you know, I get more Joker heavy than it was Batman heavy. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this film, I think. You know, I, I will say that 
this movie, of course, was most well known. Besides the fact it was a, a really, really good movie, was the way that Heath Ledger sort of took the character of the Joker and had him just become this mentally unhinged guy, and uh, apparently, literally going so deep into the character that it affected Heath Ledger. Uh, you know right. that that he went into such a dark place to create a great, like literally all time great. Uh, character and role that I really, as much as, you know, we've talked about uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance as the Joker, which was absolutely excellent. But you wonder, you know, you got Joaquin Phoenix has played the Joker. Jack Nicholson played the Joker. But has anybody been better as the Joker than Heath Ledger? I don't know if that's uh, if anyone has topped his performance, Barry. I don't think, and I think you're right about that too. And I, I, sadly, Heath Ledger dying not so long after this, or maybe even before the movie was even released. Does that sound right? I don't, you know, something just, I know that his death was somehow tied into the movie. Uh, but regardless, uh, Heath Ledger, I think the, I think we're looking at a career path for Heath Ledger had he not passed away. And I think it would have been in that role. Really spectacular, spectacular job by this guy. And yeah, this is kind of like, you know, Heath Ledger to me, Jeff, and solid, really underappreciated, solid actor. This is kind of falls into that Elvis, Bruiser, Brody kind of Bruce Lee you know, taken way before their time, what would have happened had they had these guys actually lived? I think Heath Ledger deserves to be in that group as well. Yeah, definitely a guy that, uh, you know, you asked that question, uh, what could have been, what if? And I, I think Heath Ledger was uh, the stage had been set for him just to literally explode as being a an incredible uh, movie star and uh, film actor just based on his work here. Now, Barry, we are into the top 10 from 1999, Barry, tell me your initial impressions if they were in the theater the first time you watched The Matrix. <sighs> oh, so I made the mistake of not watching it immediately and listening to all the hype. And if you remember the hype when The Matrix came out, it was Warshawski Brothers. Is that correct? Correct. Or Wachowski. Wachowski. And I made the mistake of listening to everyone saying essentially this might be the greatest movie that's ever been made, that it was mind blowing. It'll never be you'll never be the same after you see this film. And I saw it. And unfortunately, I think I saw it on like HBO. So I wound up watching it on a television. And honestly, it did almost nothing for me. It was interesting. I liked it, but I wasn't blown away. And I think partly I think it's a big screen film for sure. And I think that the hype had led me to uh, to think I was going to see something else. While it, in hindsight, it was a good movie. I, it wasn't one that I really connected with terribly. Well, here's what made it interesting for me. I was probably going to the theater quite a bit more in 1999 than I do now. And what you would see in the uh, the coming attractions that they show before every movie is uh, you would see these things like, what is The Matrix? And then you'd start seeing the ads on TV. What is The Matrix? They did a terrific job of building up, as you said, people talking about this movie. Like, what the fuck is this about? What is The Matrix? What are they talking about? And then you started seeing the first trailers, and you were like, holy shit. And then, let's be honest, Keanu Reeves was like, Bill and Ted, you know, and you're like, wait, this guy's in a fucking action movie. 
I have to be honest with you. I saw this in the theater, and the first time I saw it, I remember sitting there going, "Holy shit! What the fuck is this?" Because that's the first time you thought you saw things like bullet time, where he's like, you know, slowing down as the bullet goes past him, uh, you know, and and moving out of the way, and then he's leaping across a building uh, because he's you know swallowed the one pill as opposed to the other. Lawrence Fishburne, Carol what was her name, Carrie. Uh, the female lead. Uh, I can't. Oh remember. yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but she was, she was great in fucking leather. Uh, let's be honest. And then you had Hugo weaving as the mysterious Mr. Smith, who was just a great villain. Uh, and you know, every great protagonist needs that great villain. And Hugo weaving in this movie was a terrific villain. I fucking love this movie. I will say the uh, sequels have done almost nothing for me. With the exception, I will say, is, and I think it was the second one, there's like one of the all-time great car chases. Uh, and what they did was they essentially, uh, I don't know if they built a like a freeway somewhere, and it was specifically for this one car chase they did where he's literally jumping from a truck to a moving car, and it was just fucking crazy. Uh, I want to say her name was Carrie Moss, the lead actor. That's right. Yeah. Carrie, Carrie Moss, yeah. Yeah, and uh, but that one car chase and, and one of the, I think the second sequel was great. Other than that, I thought the sequels were pretty much a complete waste of time. But the first one, I'm going to disagree with Barry Rose and say that Barry Rose is wrong and I'm right. So there, Barry. Number nine, Barry. Now, here's a movie. I know that you favor the original as opposed to the sequel. This is a case of a sequel being every bit as good as the original. I will say that. From 1991, Barry, it's Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Oh, well, and I've quantified that as well, though. I While I do enjoy the first one more, I can't say the first one's a better film, though, because two is really a masterpiece on every level. So I, it is great. It's it, In some ways, it's almost easier to watch than the first one. When I watch the first one, I... I do have to watch the entire movie usually. The second one I can break in and just watch scenes, but there there's some incredible scenes there. And I, I, I don't know if it was CGI, but a lot of the computer graphics, this was the first movie that actually had those computer graphics. And Robert Patrick, obviously, who can morph into metal and do all these things. Liquid really metal. Incredible. Yeah, really, that was incredible for its time. Like, I remember just being blown away and seeing that. So I will always love Terminator 1 and 2, Dark Fate being my third favorite in the series. It's in that order. It's 1, 2, and then Dark Fate, which I think was the last one. But, yeah, I can never say a bad bad word about that film, Jeff. And, you I know, I, I have to be honest with you. There were other movies in the Terminator series. I, I think I, I will absolutely agree with the, the order that you gave there. There are other movies in the series that aren't that good, but each movie has their own particular, like, Parts of the movie where you're like, oh, this is pretty good stuff. Like Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Great fucking car chase with that crane. Uh, and you, and you had the, uh, the female Terminator that was after him. Uh, you know, and then there were uh, other ones that, uh, you know, maybe, as I said, were not as good as the, uh, the three we mentioned, but there were still parts of it that we like. I can't even express how big Arnold Schwarzenegger was when this movie came out. And when, when you first fucking, you know, like I, I remember, and, and I've talked about this before, I'm in the theater and that trailer comes up where you just see the, like the, uh, the metal skull, if you will, of the Terminator. Uh, and it, it opens up and you see that skull with that red eye and people in the theater completely fucking popped. 
and was like, holy shit, we know what this means. And think about it. It had been seven years since the uh, first Terminator. This was not like the year after where everyone's going to fucking know. But but seven years after the first one, people still fucking knew what that, that trailer meant. It was that, holy shit, get ready to strap yourself in because the Terminator, the next one in the series is coming out. And people were incredibly, incredibly excited for it. Uh, great car chases. The, uh, the scene where they're doing the, uh, chase through the, uh, what is it? The river, the Los Angeles river, the, the like empty the river basin. Yeah. 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 And it's one guy's in an 18 wheeler and Arnold's on a motor, on a, on a Harley with the kid. Uh, and boy, Edward Furlong, uh, he sure uh, made a, the right decision and, and had a great career after <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe not. So have he was, seen it? have you seen him lately by yeah. the way? The best. Oh, good Lord. But he was great in this role. You know, I, I mean, I, I will not ever shit on the way he was in this role. He was perfect as the kid. Uh, now, oh, Barry, at number eight, you may get a slight erection. Just when I tell you this, Barry. Got it. And at your age, I know it's not as easy as it used to be. At number eight, Barry, Kill Bill Volume One. Absolutely, too. And I, I go back and forth as to which one is better. And you know, on on a Thursday, I'll tell you Kill Bill Volume Two, and by by Monday, I'm telling you Volume One's great. I think they're both great. I can watch them both back to back. I think what sets one apart from anything else is the scene that takes place in the restaurant, the bar, and with the crazy 88s, and that to me might be the most epic fight scene of all time. It is an absolute. Bloodbath. I love Uma Thurman. I think that scene is flawless with Charlie Brown in that scene and just everything about it. What a great movie. And it's funny because Tarantino, and I praise Tarantino many times on this podcast, I think Kill Bill Volume 1 is my favorite Tarantino movie of all of them. And you just did the tournament, what, two months ago. And I think, was it Pulp Fiction, that one? Yes. Which it generally and, does. That, that's I think, I think it beat did. Kill Bill. I think it, it did. did this movie. Yeah. Yeah, it did. It's, uh, it, and that's usually the way that it goes. Kill, uh, Pulp Fiction is considered, I guess, you know, the film. And, and it, look, it's a great film. I, I, it, it's almost flawless in a lot of ways, but there is something about Uma Thurman in that role. And it's not a sexual thing. It's like this admiration for this woman who lays it out and she's, Volume two, she's got that fight scene with Vivica A. Fox, a black mamba. Remember that scene? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, and the, the daughter walks in. It's like, Oh my God, this is brutal. And I love, I love the, the, the go home where she tells her, yeah, if you want to, uh, when you get to older, if you want to come looking for me, I yep. appreciate that. You know? Yeah. And I think they were probably setting it up for maybe the future. And I know that there's talk that something, you know, there could be a volume three. I don't know how they're going to do this. And, but that scene is great. And the fight sequences, you got to give credit to, uh, to both those women and really everybody on that film, because these fight sequences are absolutely incredible. Love this film. The, uh, the article uh, contains this uh, paragraph, the climax of volume one sees Uma Thurman, uh, Uma Thurman's character taking on a small army of gangsters inside a Tokyo restaurant with the result being one of the bloodiest and most spectacular fight sequences of all time. It might be the single most violent scene in any Tarantino movie. And that's saying a lot, Barry. Yeah. Uh, And that certainly says something. What was the name of the girl that she fought? Was it uh, Gogo Suzuki or something like that? Gogo Yaburi. Yaburi. Yeah. And and, uh, she's got the, uh, like the kind of mace ball. And uh, that's, that's like really good stuff. Um, yeah, no, there was uh, so much about this movie that was 
just incredible. And, and I love one of the, uh, the way that Tarantino will, uh, manage to put in guys that he was fan, a fan of when he was younger. Uh, you know, he managed to put Michael Parks in these movies, who was in a, a show called Then Came Bronson. Uh, I think he also, uh, the guy that makes the sword for uh, Uma Thurman is Sonny Chiba. Uh, who used to do a lot of like kung fu movies during the the seventies and stuff like that? Hanzo, uh, Hattori yeah. Hanzo. Uh, yes, uh, just a tremendous, tremendous action film. At number seven, Barry, nineteen eighty one was the creation of the most, uh, the first part of what is now a five part series. As the uh, the fifth part is set, I don't know if it's come out yet, but it's getting ready to Barry. It's the original Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, I mean, absolutely. How could you, you know, it's, and I, I've told this story. I was hesitant to go see this movie because for some reason, what was this, 1980, Jeff? Would that be right? 81. 81. And I was under the impression it might be a religious themed movie. And I had, you know, I mean, could I be any more wrong? And I, I had zero desire until I read that it was not. And then I went and saw it and I walked down and I said, that might be the best movie I've ever seen at that stage and probably was. It is. I think it is as perfect a film, an adventure film, as you get. Well, you know, it's not a religious movies, but there are components that call, you know, like that reference certain like religious artifacts, if you will. Uh, so there's that. Yeah, I. You know, the funny thing about this movie, I can proudly say that uh, in my entire life, uh, until this movie, 1981, so I was 20 years old. I'd never seen my parents have an argument. I don't know the way your mom and dad were, whether they were one of these bickering couples or one of these couples that uh, always got along. My parents never argued in front of us. Now, did my parents have arguments, uh, you know, when we weren't around or they go into the bedroom and, and uh, you know, bicker back and forth? I'm sure they did, but they never showed it to us, uh, especially to me. And the night that I went to see this movie, my parents were having an argument and it was like in front of me. And I remember thinking, holy crap, like I've never seen this where my, are my parents going to get a divorce, <laughs> you know, because it's just something, you know, if it was like a regular thing, I'd be like, yeah, mom and dad are arguing again. But it was like such a traumatizing thing to a, a 20 year old booker at that point. But, uh, so I went and saw this movie and was like, wow, this is a really fucking good movie. Uh, you know, the, the giant, uh, ball rolling down that, uh, kind of like inclined as he's trying to, you know, get away through the spider webs and, and all that. And, you know, him and his whip and all the uh, different a, a little trivia contest, Barry. So he gets away in the opening part of the movie, runs through the woods, gets out in the open field. The guy in the plane's waiting for him. He jumps into the plane. They're escaping the native tribesmen who are like throwing spears and shooting arrows at them. And he discovers as he gets in the plane, the plane's taken off to uh, to let him escape with the uh, the pilot. And there's a snake in the plane. Are you with me? Yep. What was the what was the snake's name? Jake. It's a close bet, but the reason I bring this up is because our kayfabe cat Archie was uh, the second choice for when we named Archie. Archie was Reggie. And that oh. was the name of the snake in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He looked and he goes, snake, why, why, why is a snake in here? And the pilot goes, oh, that's just my pet snake, Reggie. Little little Reggie trivia for you. I would her. never have remembered that either. Well, see, you know, you, you don't have the kind of uh, callback that I do. That's for uh, sure. Except <laughs> ask me about something yesterday. And I'm like, what the <laughs> are you talking about? 
Number six, oh, again, the first movie in a long-running series from 1982. Who is this John Rambo? It's First Blood, Barry. Yeah, and it was a... uh The only thing that got me with this film, it is a good action film. I guess I was younger, obviously. I I was kind of depressed when this film was over. And it was this movie in a lot of ways. I guess if I would, I haven't watched this movie in so many years, right? It was, uh, but at the time, the story essentially was a Vietnam vet that had been uh, not really, you know, he had issues in this country and uh, he was, people had a wrong impression of him. It just, to me, it was like almost a condemnation on society and, and people going off to war and how we treat them coming back. And maybe that's what was intended, obviously. But I remember being like 18 or 19 and seeing this film and just being like, what a bummer. Like I was depressed when it was over. There was no joy. It's a very good action film. I didn't like the ones that came afterwards. But the first one I do think was a great, a great film. Uh, so I will point out a couple things. Uh, first of all, great villainous turn as the sheriff by Brian Dennehy. Yeah. Uh, who was kind of a real scumbag, uh, character. Uh, the, the book. Great Brian Dennehy too. Yes, absolutely. The, the book was, uh, written, uh, it was based on a book by a guy named uh, David Morell. And I actually read a few of the, uh, the David Morell books. Uh, very good action storyteller and uh i believe i read the the first blood uh book uh before they ended up as you said going into uh rambo being this destructive killing machine that kept going back to uh, these different war areas yeah you're absolutely right though about the fact that uh it really casts a bad look on the way that we treat guys coming back from war and you know the obvious impact and effect that it has on their life and uh shout out and salute to it any of our listeners that are uh, veterans uh, because uh, you definitely uh, did your job and did it well. And, you know, afterwards the movies became a little bit more and more ridiculous and, you know, uh, but this was really a look at a, it was some good acting by Stallone because he really played a guy that was sort of mentally damaged. And the, uh, the sheriff just picked the wrong guy to decide to, uh, you know, make the object of his derision and, uh, you know, and his bullying, you just, you picked the wrong fucking guy. And so, but it was a, a good story. I quite honestly, I don't know if I have first blood up this high. Probably should be on the list. I just don't know if it should be at number six. Next though, Barry at number five, Barry, there's nothing like having an Academy Award winner for best picture on this list, as is the case with from night, uh, from 2000, excuse me. It's crouching tiger hidden dragon. Wow. <clears throat> that was an interesting movie also. And when that movie came out, much like The Matrix, Jeff, there's a lot of similarities there. The hype around this movie was this is a game changer. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fight scenes and the, the way that they were doing it. I did think it was a great movie when I saw it. I guess it because, it you know, a lot of the fight scenes, it was that hole where people were like flying through the air and doing all that shit, which seems to have gone away. But uh I I thought it was a very good movie. It probably didn't live up to the hype, though I did I did enjoy it when I saw it. it there there was you know I I watch and I think Tubi is is where they're currently on. There is a a network where there's probably fifty kung fu movies on there, and I'm not talking the American versions. I'm talking China, Hong Kong, etc., Singapore, Sunny uh, Chiba. 
the Sonny Chiba, but even like deeper, like people you've never heard of with horrible subtitles, etc. And some of these movies are great to watch, but there was that that gimmick in these movies where when you would go for somebody, they could do a flip in the air, but not like a, a real flip. Like, you know, they would go 40 feet in the air and twirl around and land. And Crouching Tiger is what really made that popular, especially in this country. So it was a good movie. I don't want to, you know, but I don't think it was the game changer that it was being presented to be at the time. Uh, yeah, this was uh, directed by, I believe, uh, Ang Lee. Uh, who would go on to make other uh, very accomplished and well-known films in this country. When this movie came out, uh, by the way, do you remember that the sword they were looking for, Barry, was the Green Destiny? I have no yes. idea, but that suddenly just popped into my mind. Michelle Yeoh was in this, and the guy, oh, I always forget his name. Uh, he was in The, the Killer and Hard Boiled. Who was, who was that actor? Do you remember? Oh, Lou? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you could help me out, but, uh, just a, a guy that was in all these great action films from around this time frame, uh, good looking guy. And, uh, some of the, uh, as you said, some of the stunt work and the action work, people either loved it and were like, holy shit, this is epic stuff. Or they were like, this looks so phony. I can't believe I'm watching this, but there was a window wherein this stuff became very popular. Uh, chow young fat. Thank you very much. Uh, Lou. uh, but um, I know that uh, Jackie Chan did uh, he did movies like uh, The Legend of Drunken Master uh, and I think it was Drunken Master 2, where I don't think they uh, they used like the uh, the wires to the extent this movie did. But this movie certainly influenced a lot of movies that came uh, directly afterward because it was like, as you said, it was like the hot thing for the time. Barry. At number four, again, we mentioned a movie that is a sequel to an iconic original and I want to say this came out mm, six or seven years after the original, but where the original was an all-time science fiction classic, the sequel from 1986 was an all-time action classic. That's Aliens, Barry. Yeah, I mean, game changer, right? Yeah. Aliens was uh, an absolute game changer. And I, I remember we've, we've discussed this movie, I think, a few times. And it's it was it an action movie. Was it a science fiction movie? Was it a horror film? I think that was what the conversation was, right? Regardless of whatever category you put it into, game changer. This was a film that revolutionized a lot of uh, a lot of what you see and uh, what you see today in films. This was the first one to do it. And they had the uh the tagline in space no one can hear you scream i mean how fucking good is that yeah no that's that's awesome and you know one of the things that uh the alien series did and i think it was one of the first uh if not the first it was one of the first that really presented a female lead character as like the action star sigourney weaver as ripley uh yeah. you know and then linda hamilton uh in the terminator movies and other, you know, we mentioned Michelle Yao uh, in uh, Crouching Tiger. You know, women as action film stars suddenly became a much more acceptable thing. And Sigourney Weaver, it's funny, you know, she's made, uh, you know, stuff like Ghostbusters, where she was like this damsel in distress, if you will, in some ways. Uh, but in this movie, she's, you know, uh, when she when she gets into that uh, that's construction uh, like robotic suit or whatever, when the alien has grabbed. Uh, What's the what's the name of the uh, little kid? It's got a kind of a cute little name. Uh, and she says, uh, 
get your hands off her, bitch. And, uh, you know, she's, right. she's ready, to, <laughs> right. ready to throw down with the alien. It was kind of really fucking cool. Newt, that was the name of the little kid. Uh, so anyway, um, at number three, Barry, now here I'm going to just say, eh, maybe the booker's going to dispute this a little bit because, again, it's a film that's part of a series, not the original, not the sequel, not even the third one. I want to say this was the fourth in the series, Barry. Mad Max Fury Road. Now, I can tell you, as anyone who's listened to more than one episode of this show can tell you, I fucking love The Road Warrior. That's like one of my favorite movies of all time. So, Barry Rose, I'll put this to you. Is Mad Max Fury Road a better action film, not movie, action film than The Road Warrior? It, it, it probably is, right? There's a certain charm to The Road Warrior. But I think if, if you're, if we're making it basic as an action film, there are certain sequences in Fury Road that I think were, I think just fantastic. I think it does supersede the Road Warrior. Yes. No, and uh, you know, I'm not disputing it. Uh, you know, if you say it is, if you say no, uh, Road Warrior is still the better, that's fine. But Fury Road was just fucking unbelievable. The guy, uh, you know, with the guitar that shoots flames out as the, you know, uh, the villain is going into battle. And it's, it's really cool that the villain was the actor who played, um, the toe cutter in the very first right. Mad Max movie, you know, that's, that's really a nice homage by director James, uh, George Miller. And, uh, yeah, I, I've heard, uh, rumors slash scuttlebutt that there may be a, uh, another movie in the Mad Max series that's uh, in development by George Miller. Uh, but yeah, no, this is a uh, boy. This is a proverbial Saturday afternoon and it's raining and Mad Max Fury Road is on one of the channels and you're like, okay, yeah, right, get the popcorn out of it. We're ready to go. Number two, Barry. Oh, Barry Rose will be happy to know that from 1988, his favorite Christmas movie of all time made the list not at number one, Barry, but at number two, it's Die Hard. There you go, baby. It is, uh, it's a great movie. It's a Christmas movie, Jeff. It's one that I think you can gather the whole family around and celebrate the holidays and feel good about it while you're enjoying pineapple on your pizza. But die hard. A little cup of cocoa with some marshmallows, maybe waiting for Santa Claus. And let's watch John McClane kill the fucking German terrorists. <laughs> These German terrorists, exactly. Look, you got Clarence Gilliard Jr. in here, the great from from uh, the fucking from Walker, uh, Texas Ranger. You've got you know, you've got Alan Rickman. I think this might have even been his film debut in this country, if I'm yes, correct. Yes, I believe that's correct. Yeah, I mean, what a debut it was! Just everything about this movie works. There is again a perfect film. I watch it several times. I always watch it during the holiday season but even you know during the summer i'll still go ahead and watch it i think this is just a spectacular spectacular movie Uh, incredibly influential because for uh, a few years afterwards you would have uh you know movies that would be like you know like uh steven segal did uh under siege which was a die hard on a ship and they did right. it under siege two, die hard on a train and everything, you know, all these action films were die hard in this particular different location. So, uh, very, very influential. And the interesting thing is in 1988, you know, Bruce Willis had been, uh, the star of, uh, oh God, that TV show with, uh, what's her name? Uh, Sybil Shepherd. What was the name of that show? Moonlighting. Moonlighting. Yeah. So when they put him in this role, I, I believe I've read he was not the original choice to play John McClane. So they were taking a certain risk in putting this guy that was best known for this 
quasi sitcom slash drama, a drama show and putting him and making him the lead action star in this movie. And he did a really good job and his career was made. And, you know, uh, other than a couple of, uh, uh, well-known missteps, uh, with, uh, what the fuck was the one, uh, Bonfire of the Vanities and some of those, hey, the guy had his career made, uh, as an action film star. So number one is an interesting choice, Barry. It's a great film. I don't know that I'd have it as number one, but I think its inclusion on this list is absolutely in a necessity from 1954, Barry, and one of the great directors in the history of film. Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Wow. Have you Uh, seen it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been years, but oh, wow. It is. I mean, this was apparently the Seven Samurai was the template of so many action movies that took place in, in this country. And they use that literally as their, as their board, their their springboard for that. Magnificent Seven. Yeah, absolutely. So, and there's, a, I guess there's a slew of movies. I don't have the whole list, but yeah, that's a, that's a great choice. That's an interesting choice. Where did this, finally a list where there's some culture attached to it. Where did this list come from? Uh, this is Curry. Oh, you're going to ask me a perfectly into Collider.com. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, the other thing about Kurosawa, uh, who is essentially Japan's, uh, Hitchcock, uh, slash, uh, Orson Welles slash Scorsese, uh, Spielberg, whatever, a, a guy that was so influential. A lot of the movies that you see that became so iconic, a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, uh, were based on, they were ba- essentially remakes of Kurosawa films, you know, uh, right. Yojimbo, uh, Rashomon, uh, all these movies that he made during his career, uh, were end up, end up getting remade as like, uh, the spaghetti westerns that, uh, Clint Eastwood made. Uh, and everything. So, uh, incredibly influential director. Uh, Seven Samurai is a great action film. I know that there are those out there that would never deem to watch this because, of course, that would mean I'd have to look at subtitles. But uh, you're really doing yourself a disservice because this is an absolutely epic three hours. Uh, the movie surrounding uh, revolving around a village whose inhabitants are being targeted by bandits. So they enlist samurai, seven of them to help in defending themselves. It is a structure of forming a team, training, and then doing battle. Each of the three taking up one act has influenced countless other action movies, and the way it displays the combat is more visceral and believable than anything else from its era. Filmed action has become more bombastic since 1954. Sure, but the majority of action films owe something to Seven Samurai for paving the way for the genre as a whole. For that reason, it's the greatest action movie of all time. All right, Barry, about ready to uh, do the old go home as we are wont to do here. A little bit uh, longer than usual episode, but what the hey, we wanted to talk a little superstar Billy Graham. And why is it longer than usual, Jeff? Because what are we? We're givers. We're givers, if nothing else, Barry. And That's now uh, episode 294 is done. Barry Rose, we have, I believe, only a limit to the math to carry the four, five more regular episodes. Uh, regular episodes, that does not mean, before you begin to panic, and I know there's some panickers out there, that does not mean that we are done, because we will still exist in the world of Patreon. Oh, Barry, a mere $5 of your hard-earned money. For those of you only making $5 an hour, guess what? I'll give you a pass. But if you're making more than 5 bucks an hour, 
Why the hell aren't you being a Patreon subscriber and listening to the sort of quality content that you get here on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the regular episodic portion, Barry? Is that too much to ask? It's really not. When you stop and think about it, it's definitely not. And look, we've got after this, as Jeff was just saying, six more episodes. And, and, and that's Did I say it. five or six? I don't know. I, I was I, told there'd be no math. Yeah, it was exactly. So I, you may be right. I could be right. I got no idea. But the, look, we're, we're basically at the end of the rope. There's a handful of episodes left, and then we're switching over to Patreon. And look, I don't know we're how we're reaching long out for the tag, Barry, for the people to be Patreon subscribers. Are you going to suddenly start combing your hair? Or are you going to make the hot tag to Bowdrin and Barry? Make the hot tag because hair is a fleeting thing. But That's boys, true. your two best friends, we're always in your corner. So. Three, Barry. Three. Don't leave sweet right. blue out of the equation. No. On that note, I will say that Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry, still a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for a little bit longer oh, on the regular, regular episodic uh, portions. So for our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, City by the Bay, you know him well, scam likely occasionally. And my co-host, Barry Rose, does not have to go to the airport tomorrow morning, much you know, much like he had to last week. How'd that trip to the airport go, by the way, Barry? That went extremely well going. Coming home, not quite as well. We were in traffic for a while, but I was happy to see the lovely Linda, and I'm happy she's back home. Did Linda, when she saw you, do the proverbial running through the airport, jumping into your arms, into the arms of her beloved. Well, she might have with someone else. I was in the <laughs> car waiting for her, so it's would have been difficult after on she, my after end. After she met that guy, she let you give her a ride home. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, on that note, I would say I'm the booker, Jeff Bowdrin, Barry Rose, Plymouth Meeting PA, uh, not going to the airport this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, my buddy Gunny. Uh, you think I was going to let you off, buddy? No, I still love you and I miss you so much, but. I got my boy Snap here chewing on a good bone, sitting ringside here uh, while I'm on the mic. Uh, for uh, for Barry, Lou, and myself, we will talk to you next week. Take it home, Lou.